thing to become a Christian. The idea here is this man had in his heart another god, another king sitting on its throne. He had another idol or another god that he worshipped, and that was wealth. That was money. That's where he, he defined himself. That's where he found his worth. That's where he found his value. And so Jesus, knowing the young man's heart, uh, called him to basically change the God in his life. Change it from wealth and money to change it to Jesus. To Instead of surrendering to and submitting to uh, wealth as his uh, king, as his uh, God, as his salvation, uh, to transfer that to Jesus. And the young man walked away sad because he would rather hold on to the temporary uh, pleasures that he had in his wealth uh, than surrender to Jesus for eternal life. So as this happens, the disciples have some questions. Jesus uh, sits down, as he does oftentimes after something happens, he sits down with his disciples to to teach them, uh, and he really kind of rocks their world. And so, as we go through this morning, as Jesus and his disciples have this discussion, what we're going to look at is we're going to look at the the nature of the gospel. We're also going to look at, uh, we're going to kind of continue the idea that we started last week, looking at uh, idols that we may uh, struggle with in our own heart. Remember, uh, there was an old theologian who said that the, the human heart is a factory for creating idols. It is possible for us to take a lot of really good things and raise them up higher than they should be. You know, a lot of times we think of idols, we think of the little stone statues that people bow down to, but, but most of the time that's not an idol, especially for us. Idols are when we take good things, even good things God has given us, and we raise them to the level of God in our life. We make them chief in our life, and that's what an idol is. It's something that, that dominates your life and that sits on the throne of your life. It might even be a really good thing. So as we continue on uh, with this story, that's going to be the direction that we are going. So let's read verses um, 23 through 31. We're going to pray, and then we will uh, make our way back through the passage. Excuse me. All right, it says, And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Verse 28, Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now. Thank you for this time that you've given us. We thank you for this uh, moment just to be able to pause from our weeks, from our days, just to, uh, to sit down and, and study God's Word together. Father God, I pray that as we have sung praises to you, as we now sit down to examine your Word, Father, I pray that you would meet with us. Father God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, to our minds, through your Word and through your Holy Spirit. Father God, in a very deep, very real, uh, very honest way, And Father God, I pray that we would respond with obedience, that we would respond with faith. God, that we would respond seeking to glorify you with all that we are. 
We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. All right. So the first thing that I want us to see is that the disciples had a faulty understanding of God and man. Now, when I first got married, one of the first lessons that I learned was sometimes the things that you say are not what the other person hears. You might say something and someone else takes it a completely different way. Not even the direction that you meant for it to go. And so what we're seeing here is Jesus gathers disciples to, uh, to begin to have this conversation. Is He makes a statement, and he's got a purpose for that statement. And the disciples kind of hear it and kind of go a different way with it and kind of take a different direction in the way that they process it. Now, understand, Jesus knew how they were going to process it. So Jesus made the statement to kind of help correct their belief. But as he says this statement, and the way they take the statement or hear the statement are two different directions. So first we're going to look at kind of how they hear the statement and and kind of what Jesus is correcting. But then we're going to look at the main reason why Jesus made his statement. What the truth was behind the statement that he is making. All right. So he says in verse 23, he says, And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. So here's how they hear it, and here's what we're going to take from this, is that bad theology comes from bad teaching. Now understand, remember, theology is what we believe about who God is and how God interacts with with mankind. Theology is about all about who God is and what that means for us as people who are created by God, as people who uh, love God and worship God and serve God. That's what theology is. And so Jesus makes this statement that says uh, that it will be difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And this is why this is such a, a shocking statement to the disciples. And we know it's a shocking statement to the disciples because in verse 26, they say, well, in verse 24, it says they were amazed at his words. And then in verse 26, it says they were astonished, exceedingly astonished. And said to him, who can be saved? Then who can be saved? And the reason why they respond in this manner is because in this time, the rabbinical teachings, remember, rabbinical just means the teaching of the rabbis, and the rabbis were just teachers. So the the teaching of this time, the rabbinical tradition, was that if you had a lot of money, if you were wealthy, it means that you were blessed by God. The only reason you had money was because God found favor in you and provided you all of this wealth. So in their mind, in their context, and uh, how they were taught, how they were raised, what they were raised to believe is that the wealthy people are basically, they're in the door for heaven. We know that because God has favored them by giving them a lot of money. Now, the Jews at this time, as the Jews do today, their salvation was found in keeping the law. Or they thought, excuse me, they thought salvation was found through keeping the law. So, so for them to be saved, they would uh, try to obey the law. They would do their sacrifices. They would uh, keep all the, holy, all the holy days and all the festivals because that's where they found their salvation. It's a very work-based salvation. It's not a salvation by grace. Salvation by work. So it's not a real salvation. And so for them, the wealthy, they were kind of already in the door. It meant that God had already basically promised them that, hey, you've done enough good stuff. You've done enough good works. You are in the door. You are saved. And they knew this because of the wealth that they had. So when Jesus says it is difficult for a wealthy person to enter into the kingdom of God, this creates this huge issue for them in their minds. This creates this huge issue for them saying, well, if, and this is why Peter asked this question in a little bit, well, if the wealthy aren't saved, 
then, then who is saved? How are you saved? If, if not them, then who? Then who is the one? How do we know that we're saved? Even the wealthy aren't there. Even if they aren't guaranteed salvation because of their wealth, because of their blessings from God, then who are we to, to even consider salvation? Now, I said this is a bad theology based on bad teaching because one, this is a bad theology. Just because you have a lot of wealth does not mean that that came from God. In the same way, if you look at a church and the church has thousands of members, that does not mean that that church is blessed by God. In fact, some of the biggest churches in America are churches that preach health, wealth, prosperity gospel. They teach salvation by works. They teach a watered-down version of God's Word. And what 2 Timothy tells us is that there will come a time when people want to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate teachers that tell them what they want to hear. So what we see here is that several of the large churches in America have accumulated teachers that basically just tell people what makes them feel good. They tell people what they want to hear instead of dealing with the gospel, instead of dealing with who God is, instead of dealing with sin. Uh, they don't even talk about that. And it's all, all positive stuff all the time. And so they're not churches that are necessarily blessed by God. So in the same way, just because someone had money in this time does not mean that that all came from God. It doesn't mean they were favored and blessed by God, and that's why they had wealth. But that's what they had been taught, and now Jesus is correcting that teaching. Let me just make a statement here, chase a little bit of a rabbit. Our belief system has to come from Scripture. Remember, in Isaiah, God says, who is like me that you would liken to me? Or, and he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. What that means is God is different from us. And that's a good thing. And so for us to know who God is and how we interact with God, that does not come from our own thoughts, our own experiences. It comes from God and His Word. And let me just tell you, when, when someone has been taught a certain thing, especially from a childhood, it can take a lot to to move past that. It really takes a work of God to move past that. I had a young man in my office one morning who was begging me to baptize him so that he could, uh, in his words, be saved and have his sins washed away. And I spent 30 minutes to an hour telling him that, that the only way your sins are washed away are by faith and trust in Jesus Christ, not through baptism, that water does not do anything. It's only by trusting in Jesus that you can be saved and that your sins can be washed away. We went back and forth until he finally just left saying that he would go find someone else to baptize him so that he could be saved. And it's because he had been taught from a young age this thing that the Bible does not say, and he could not move past it. We have to guard our hearts. We have to guard our hearts because there is false teaching all around us. And if something does not come from God's Word, then we have to be highly susceptible of it and, and really stay away from it until we, we, we know what God's Word says. All right, so bad theology comes from bad teaching. And so here's what Jesus really means. And here's what we're going to see. And this kind of drives the direction of the message. Faith in temporary things brings temporary results. Now, Jesus in this, when he says it's difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, he is not saying that money is bad. In fact, in our, on our Sunday night things, one of the topics that we're going to uh, look at is that the, the, or the statements that is said sometimes is that money is the root of all evil. Money is not the root of all evil. It's the love of money. It's the greed. It's the idolatry of trusting in wealth to provide you with your life, to provide you with satisfaction, to provide you with joy, to, to provide you with 
with who you are and define who you are. So as Jesus says, it is difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. He is not saying that the rich people are bad or that money is bad. What he's saying is that anyone who has an idol, anyone who is trusting anything other than Jesus Christ for their salvation, something temporary, something created, whether it's comfort, whether it's whether it's people, whether it's a job, whether it's finances, we trust anything other than Jesus Christ, it brings us nothing. The only way to get to heaven, the only way to get to God the Father is through Jesus Christ the Son. Now specifically when he's talking about the wealthy and why this is a great illustration is because for the wealthy there is a temptation there to be... um, To trust in their self-sufficiency. To trust in the security that their wealth or their money gives them. Now that doesn't mean that every, every wealthy person does this. But there's a temptation that comes along with wealth that says, look, I can live comfortably, I can live nice, I'm I'm self-sufficient, I've provided for myself, I'm secure in my finances, I don't have to worry about a lot of stuff that a lot of people have to worry about. And there is a, a, a temptation there to trust in the finances, to trust in your wealth as your idol, as the king of your life. And so Jesus is using the wealthy as an illustration here, one, to, to correct the belief of the disciples, but two, to make the point that, look, we cannot be sufficient in anything else other than Jesus because everything else is temporary. Everything else is created. So everything else will fail us when it comes to the the reality of salvation or finding our joy and our satisfaction, our forgiveness, our grace, our fulfillment in it. Nothing else stands up to Jesus. And so you can have all the money in the world and it's not going to provide you entrance to the God's kingdom. Only Jesus Christ can do that. You can have the biggest and the best family in the world. You can have the godliest parents or the godliest grandparents. You can have the best job or the most popularity and the most prestige. And none of that is going to get you into the kingdom of God. None of that is going to provide salvation. That that no matter what you have that you might be tempted to trust in, the only thing that can bring about salvation is Jesus. And that's the direction Jesus is going. So let's move next to the next couple of verses, verses 24 through 27. And we'll see the the impossible nature of salvation apart from Christ. Let's read 24 through 27. It says, And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they, are, and they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Now, once again, the topic, the direction Jesus is talking about is salvation and where salvation is found. So he says it is difficult to enter the kingdom of God, and it is uh, is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So what is he talking about here? If you've been in church for any length of time, then you are probably like me and have heard and maybe even taught like I did that there was uh, another gate in the... well. In this time, all the major cities had walls going around them. That was their protection. So as the walls were going around Jerusalem, there were gates to which you could enter into the city. And if someone came to fight against them, there were doors and gates that could be closed on those, or doors that be closed on those gates. But otherwise, that's how you entered the city. And so there's a teaching that I'm not even sure where it originated from that said that there was a gate called a camel gate, or called, excuse me, it's called the eye of the needle, that a camel could get 
into it, if you unloaded all of the, the luggage and the baggage and the things that it was carried, and if the camel got on its knees, that it could it kind of waddle its way or squeeze its way through it. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Let me say a couple of things about this. One, because I used to, to, to teach this until more study kind of brought me to a different, a different stance. One, there's no uh, historical or archaeological evidence to support this. Which means in the Bible or any other historical writing from this time, there is nothing that says this gate exists. And as they have been doing excavations and archaeology on the, on the city of Jerusalem and on these walls, there's never been found anything that pointed to uh, this eye of the needle, this gate. One. Two, it would be incredibly impractical. Imagine you're, you're coming into the city and you've got, maybe you're coming in and you've got your family with you. So the camel is carrying your luggage. Or maybe you're, you're coming in as a merchant. Your camel is carrying the stuff that you're going to be selling. What makes more sense? To unload the camel, take everything off, have it crawl through this thing and then put everything back on. Or go through one of the eight or nine other regular size gates that you can just walk right, right through. One makes a lot of sense, and one makes, makes no sense. It's incredibly impractical. Why would you have a, a gate sitting there that, that makes it so difficult to enter into the city? Third, and this is the big one, this is the main one. Third, it completely, if that were the case, it completely misses the point of what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. The point here is why Jesus is using this this, uh, absurd illustration. You can never take a needle and fit a camel through that needle. It's impossible. In the same way, salvation by mankind, by our own ingenuity, by our own wisdom, by our own ability, by our own power, it's not just difficult like taking off the luggage of a camel and getting it to go through that gate. It is impossible, like taking a sewing needle and trying to fit a camel through it. Salvation apart from God, apart from Jesus Christ, is not possible. There is absolutely zero way that could ever happen, occur. The only way for salvation is the way that God has created. By faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for you and for me so that we could have life. That alone is how we are saved. And so for the disciples, or for for them, for Jesus teaching this, if it simply meant that there was a small gate that could be gone through with a whole lot of effort, then that would mean Jesus is saying that there is a way to enter the kingdom of God by our own power. And that would go completely opposite of everything else the Bible tells us. The only way to enter the kingdom of God is through Jesus. And anything else is that impossible as taking a camel, which in that area was the largest animal, and putting it through the eye of a sewing needle. So Jesus is the only way to the Father. So the point of verses 23 through 27 is that there is no way to salvation. So as Jesus is making this point, as he is teaching the disciples, as, as this young, rich young ruler has just walked away... Jesus is reaffirming to the disciples that, look, if you want to be saved, salvation is only through me. Salvation is only through the way that God has created. Now, when we talk about salvation in the church, really there's two people in this room. There's those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and, and those who have not. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, look, when we talk about the gospel, our response should never be, oh, okay, I know this. Let me kind of zone out for a second. I've heard about this ever since I've been in church. When we hear about the gospel, 
Well, there's, there's three reactions that we should have. One, we should be incredibly thankful and worshipful for everything that God has done for us. Every day, we should be incredibly thankful for the gospel because we understand our sinfulness. And I know that there is nothing in me that deserves God's love. Yet God has freely given it to me through His Son. So when I hear of the gospel, when I hear of Jesus and the cross, it should just make me incredibly thankful and worshipful for all that God has done for me. Secondly, it should make me examine my heart and examine my life to see, am I living my life as one who loves God? Am I living my life as one who is a child of God? Am I living my life as one who's saying, all right, God has saved me. Is my life surrendered to Him? It should cause kind of an introspection, examining our hearts, examining our lives to make sure we are striving to live obediently to Jesus Christ. And third, it should burden our hearts for the lost. It should burden our hearts to be, yes, I'm incredibly thankful that God has saved me, but what about the other billions of people in this world who have never accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? What about the one point, I think it's about 1.6 now, 1.5 billion people who have never even heard the gospel? And it should drive us to to pray for and seek out people that we can share with them the love of Jesus Christ. Because apart from the grace of God, this whole point Jesus has been making is there's no way to salvation apart from Jesus. Next, something else that we can take from this is that we need to examine our hearts for any idols that may be challenging God's position in our life. Remember, The rich young man or the rich young ruler walked away because he had great wealth. And that wealth was more valuable to him than God. That wealth sat on the throne of his life, sat on the throne of his heart. It was his God. And that was more important to him than God, than Jesus, than the eternal life that Jesus Christ offered. So let me kind of read some stuff for us, uh, some questions that we can ask that, that help us kind of examine our heart and see who or what is sitting on the throne of our heart. Now, this is not original to me. Uh, most of this came from a guy named J.D. Greer, who is a, a pastor. In fact, I think he's actually the president of uh, the North American Mission Board now. But here's some of the stuff that he says that kind of helps you kind of take some introspection, some kind of just examining your own heart. He says, what do you seek your ultimate joy, or where do you seek your ultimate joy or satisfaction? Not just what makes you happy, but what just defines your happiness? What just defines your life? If your life was defined by something, if, if who you were was defined by something, what would that be? Is it being a child of God? Is it being a parent? Is it being uh, uh, what you do for a living? What is it that defines you? What makes you angry? Not just mad, but what, what makes you uncontrollably, uh, vehemently angry? What just, uh, if something goes wrong with it, it or it, it were to leave your life, it would make you so upset that just, that's a sign that it might hold too much value in your life. What causes you fear? Not just everyday anxiety or worry, but panicked, terror-stricken, paralyzing fear. That if I lost this, there's no way my life could go on. What drives you to sadness? Not just disappointment, but despairing, inconsolable sadness. What in your life, if threatened or lost, drives you to emotional, do the emotional edge of anger, fear, or sadness? It's just some of the things that we can use to examine our hearts to say, what is the most important thing in my life? What, what sits on the throne of my life? Because look, it's easy to give the church answer, the answer, the Sunday school answer, and say, okay, Jesus is on the throne of my life. God is on the throne of my life, and just go on. But if we are being honest with ourselves and ultimately with God, 
then there are times when something else sneaks onto the throne of our life. And it sits there as our God or as an idol. And we need to be examining our hearts to make sure that God and God alone sits on that throne. Look, if I'm not careful, I've told y'all this before. When I first got married, my wife moved to the throne of my life. Not because of her, because of me. Because I, my happiness, my self-worth was found in how she viewed me and making sure she was happy. So no matter what, as long as she was happy, as long as, as, as she came first, then, then, then I found myself, I found my worth, I found my identity in being her husband. Now she didn't force herself there. I put her to the position of being God in my life. And I had to repent of that. I'll be honest with you, for pastors, it is a huge temptation to set the ministry or set being a pastor uh, as the God in my life. Every pastor that I know of struggles with this, that we allow it to define who we are. What should define who we are is who God is, what God has done for us, how God has loved us through His Son, and what He says about us, and the promises that He has made us. And and when that defines our life, then that shapes who I am as a father, it shapes who I am as a husband, it shapes who I am as a pastor, it shapes who I am as a worker, it shapes who I am as a friend, it shapes who I am as a neighbor, it shapes how I spend my money, it shapes how I spend my time, it shapes everything about me. And the reality is whatever is on the throne of your life or whoever is on the throne of your life impacts every aspect of your life. So if it's not God, the creator, then it's a creation. And so it's not worth that spot. All right. Now let's go on because Peter begins to ask a question. He makes a statement where he's basically asking the question, verse 28, how are we saved? Verse 28 says, Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Now, understand, Peter is not uh, saying, Hey, are we saved because we've, left, because we've left everything? Peter's saying, Look, the rich young ruler, he didn't think that you were worth surrendering his life to. Look, we have recognized how great you are. Remember a couple of chapters ago, Peter said, You are the, uh, the Messiah. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. When Jesus asked who he was, he confessed that he was the Messiah, that he was God in the flesh. Peter's saying, Look, we have believed who you are, and we have left you or left everything for you. Does that bring about, what does that mean for us? If the young rich ruler walked away from, from you because he wanted everything else, we have walked away from everything else because we wanted you. And it brings us to this. Verses 29 through 30, we see that, that Jesus and the gospel are the essentials of salvation. Look at verses 29 through 30, it says this. Jesus said, truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Now, so Jesus' response to Peter. He is not saying, look, salvation is found by giving up all of your stuff. Because if you see, look, he says, whoever loses all this stuff, basically, then he says, for my sake and for the gospel. 
who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. And this is the gospel. The gospel is the fact that God is perfect and you and I are not. The gospel is God is perfect and sinless and you and I are sinners who have broken God's commandment. And because of that, we deserve judgment and we deserve hell. But the gospel says that God loved us enough that He took His Son, Jesus, who is sitting on the throne of heaven, sent Him down to earth to be born as an infant, to grow up and to live 33 years, to die on a cross, to take our sin, and our judgment and our guilt upon Himself so that if we would place our faith and trust in Him as Lord and Savior, we could be saved. Meaning, our sins are washed away and we are adopted into God's family. That's the gospel. That is salvation. So Jesus says, look, if for that sake, if that is the driving factor in your life, and you have lost everything else, that's what he is talking about. He's not saying, hey, just go get rid of all your stuff and live as a hermit or live, as, live on the streets as someone who is poverty or poverty stricken, who has lost all their family. No, he's saying, look, if you have held me up as high for my sake in the gospel, if you have recognized your sinfulness, you have surrendered to me, and if it has cost you all of this stuff... He is forming the gospel in himself as the foundation of our faith. He says, if it has cost you all of these things, then he tells them the things that will come in this life and in the life to come. Look, if you remember, Jesus Christ said that that those who are disciples are those who take up their cross and follow him. Jesus said that we are to love God and love Jesus more than our our families and our jobs and, and everything else, our possessions. That we are to hold him high. Hold Him as first. Hold Him as chief. He is to be our God. He is to be our King. He is to be the source of salvation that we seek after. And if that costs everything else in our life, then what He offers is far better. Even if it doesn't cost us everything in our life. Look, when I accepted Christ, my parents rejoiced in that. There are some places in this world that if you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your family considers you dead. And you have no family anymore. There are some places in this world where if you claim to be a Christian, you will be beheaded because you have a faith differing from the majority of the faith around you. And Jesus says, look, if you have accepted me, if you lose everything else in this life, then understand what I offer you is far, far greater. So what does he offer? He lists three things. He says two in this life and one in eternity. First thing is a new family. He says in verse 30, you will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. Look, when we become Christians, we enter into a new family. There's a reason why in the church people call, them, call each other brothers and sisters. It's not because uh, we're in uh, like this kind of weird cult where you've had to like throw away your old family and bring on a new family. It's because in Jesus Christ, we have been made... We talked about this some Sunday night. We are joint heirs with Jesus, which means the way it was described is He has been proud to count us as brothers and sisters, which means through Christ we are a family. We are brothers and sisters in the faith with God being our Father, with Jesus being our older brother. We are united together in the faith. And so as Christians with this new family, we have people to encourage us. We have people to help us. We have people to pray with and pray for us. We have people to, to have fish fries with and go eat crawdads with. We have people that are our family that, that we have a new relationship with. 
As Christians, we are not lone rangers who go off and do our own thing. We are part of the body of Jesus with a brand new family. Now, once again, that doesn't mean that we get rid of our old family, but it means we have added to us a brand new family with new brothers and sisters who are there to encourage us and to build us up. It means that there's a new position in this world. He says, not only do you receive all this stuff, but he also says, with persecutions. Look, the Bible is not shy. The Bible does not kind of uh, hide in the fine print that if you are a child of God, that you are an enemy to the world around you. Jesus said that the road is wide and the gate is wide that leads to the destruction. There are many who find it. And the road is narrow and the gate is narrow for those who find salvation. Jesus said, if the world hated me, they will hate you. And they, they hung him on a tree and killed him. Paul says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The Bible does not hide the fact that as a Christian, you are a a child of light now in a world of darkness, and you are in the minority. I'm in the minority. We are in the minority as believers in this world. So yes, that might come with persecution. It might come with people who don't like us or despise us or mock us or make fun of us because of our beliefs. But not only have we been given a new family, not only would we have this new world, but also we have a new life. He says, with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. People in this world mock us. The disciples, once Jesus ascended into heaven and they were out preaching and the uh, Pentecost happened and people were getting saved, thousands of people. The disciples were arrested and they were thrown in jail and they were beat uh, with the, the, the cat of nine tails 39 times. And it said when they left, they left rejoicing, being counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. Because what they had understood as they have gone through this three-year living with Jesus Christ, as they went through Jesus' death and burial and resurrection and ascension into heaven, what they came to realize is no matter what this world throws at us, Jesus is greater. No matter what persecutions this world throws at us, the promises that we have in Jesus far outweigh anything that we suffer right now. And the promises of Jesus is eternal life. The promises of Jesus is you are adopted into God's family. He is your Father. And we will live with Him for eternity in perfection with Him in heaven. And so, yes, there is a promise of of persecutions, but there's also a promise of not only people who who uphold us and encourage us when we might be persecuted, but also the promise of eternal life, that once this life ends, I'm no longer guilty for my sins. Jesus has taken that. When this life ends, my guilt is gone. My guilt has been paid for. I get to stand before God and be entered into His kingdom, His home, His heaven for all of eternity. Instead of judgment and punishment in hell, I have life and joy forever with Him. So that leads us to verse 31. It leads us to understanding that we are responsible to make our decisions about Jesus. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. The rich young ruler in this world, he was first. He had money. Being a ruler, being a leader, he was respected. He had a lot of stuff. But he was not willing to to lift Jesus up above it. And so while he was first here, when it came to eternity... He would be last because he made a decision. He made a decision that says, I love this world and I love the temporary nature of this world more than I love the fact of, more than I love wanting to be with God for eternity. 
And in this world, you may have persecutions. In this world, you may be last. In this world, you may be poor. In this world, you may be be chastised and looked down on. In this world, throughout history, Christians have been persecuted and mocked and and thrown to lions and, and everything that you can think of. And you might be last in this world, but there's coming a time when you will be first. There's coming a time when you will stand before God and everyone who mocked you and everyone who who did not believe what you believed, sadly, they're going to face the punishment for their decisions. They're going to face the punishment for their actions. But you get to spend eternity with God. So there's a decision to be made. There's a decision for every human being to make. Who am I going to follow? Who is going to be the king of my life? Who am I going to trust in for my salvation? Am I going to trust in things that that, that don't last? Am I going to trust in things that are temporary? Am I going to deny the existence of God? Am I trusting in something that cannot provide what I'm trusting it for? Or do I trust in Jesus? Am I content with the temporary? Or do I long for life with the eternal God forever and ever and ever? We also need to take this moment to examine our own hearts. Maybe you've already answered that question. You said, you know what? I've placed my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I know that I'm His and He is mine. And that is settled. Is He still on the throne of your life? Or has something else supplanted that? Has something else taken that spot? Have we given that spot to something or to someone else? And look, this isn't something that we need to ask ourselves once. This is something that we need to ask ourselves daily, weekly, monthly, often as we examine our hearts to see who it is that we are living for and following. Because Jesus and Jesus alone is the only one, or God and God alone is the only one who deserves to be king in our life. He is the only one who's provided for our salvation through His Son. He is the only one that can offer us salvation. And He is the only one who deserves to be our king and our God. Let's pray.